0: Hello and welcome to Love Is Not A List. With me, Gillian McCallum, come on a journey with me to meet the top in their field, to take an alternative look at all things life, relationships, dating, parenthood, love and fertility with the lofty aspiration, changing your life for the better. Well, hello, this week, we've got one of Britain's best known political pollsters. It's Joe Twyman. He is the co-founder and director of Delta Poll, and he previously worked as head of political and social research at YouGov. He was a director of the founding of that company back in 2000. Prior to leading the political and social research team at YouGov, Joe held a variety of senior positions within the company and was responsible for building the company's online research operations. He also spent two and a half fascinating years in Baghdad as a director of UGov's Iraq operation from 2007 to 2010. He's worked as an affiliated lecturer at the University of Cambridge, a visiting professor at the University of Sheffield, a visiting research fellow at the University of Manchester and a lecturer in research methods at the University of Essex Summer School. Far more importantly, Joe has conducted a number of public opinion studies on sex and relationships, including what he believes to be the largest representative survey of British sexual fantasies in history. Move over sure Heights. Joe Twyman is in town. Thank you for joining me. I have to say at the very beginning, you don't know this, but I'm an unofficial pollster too. If I want to know what is going on in the heart of the nation, I go to the Daily Mail, I go to the comments section, and whatever's been up arrowed the most, whether it's 3,000, 4,000 or 5,000 times, tells me what people are thinking. Is that a proper way to go about working out what's going on with the British nation and what they're thinking on all matters?
1: Uh, Yeah, if you're completely crazy and wish to be uh, consistently wrong. Um, that is uh, that is a very poor way of uh, of even assessing what the views are of the people who read the daily Mail website those types of uh, those types of comments are uh, often and famously subject to huge amounts of uh, uh, of manipulation from all sorts of different uh, also different organizations and have been now for uh for decades so uh, so I would advise against uh, the Daily Mail, the Daily Mail comments page, and the voting on the Daily Mail comments page, as a way to uh, as a way to assess these things. So, by
0: the sounds of things, what you're looking for when you're polling is the heart of the matter. You want to get to the truth. You want to find out exactly what's going on. And by the sounds of things, you think you've got a pretty reliable way of finding out.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, I think uh, I I probably won't talk. In full detail about the way we go about these things because uh, because it would take uh, an extremely long time and perhaps not be top of mind for everyone listening to this, but the short answer is that we seek to accurately represent the views of the population we 're trying to survey, and so if that's the British public that we're trying to uh, trying to represent in their views, we spend a lot of time to make sure that the people we speak to whether it's 1,000, 2,000 or 15,000, are a representative sample in terms of age, gender, region, but also many attitudinal things of the country as a whole. And people may say, oh, well, hang on, how can you only do that with 1,500 or 2,000 people? How can um, how can that tell you what, uh, what a population of 60 million people think? Uh, and the answer to that is because it's that appropriate representative sample. In the same way that if you have a big bowl of soup, you don't need to eat all of the soup to know what flavour it is. If it's mixed properly, you just need one spoonful. And similarly, when you go for a blood test, they don't need to take all of your blood.
0: Pleased to hear that. So when it comes to you and your polling, you said there in the introduction, you've done one of the biggest surveys on sex, uh, sexual fantasies, what what are the what are the British public thinking when it comes to sex? Are people more open about talking about what they're looking for between the sheets? Uh,
1: well, more more open. I would say that uh, I would say that over the very long term, so we're talking over decades, people have become more comfortable about talking, whether it's uh, whether it's sex generally, whether it's fancy specifically. People have become more comfortable about this but that is over the very long term. Uh, one of the major impacts on that was uh, was the growth of social media, but before that, the growth of the internet. But having said all of that, it's not the case that British people, or indeed other people, are often very open about talking about these things. And although progress has been made towards openness, we still tend to be relatively, uh, uh, how would I put it, relatively quiet about uh, about talking about such things. And that's why the work that uh, the work was done on sexual fantasies was uh, was so important because a lot of uh, a lot of surveys that are conducted on sex tend to be of extremely poor quality, uh, either consciously or subconsciously by the people conducting those surveys, knowing that really they uh, they won't account for much and it doesn't really matter. They're just there to attract attention for a website or a product or a campaign or a message or something. And so, really, the, the if you like the scientific quality of that doesn't matter. And so there's loads of surveys out there like that on the subject of sex and, rela- and similarly on relationships. And then you have the very serious health surveys. Uh, in this country, for instance, we have the, uh, we have the National Survey of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyle, which has been, was first run in 1990. That goes around, uh, out to around 15,000 people every 10 years. And that's a serious health study conducted by the, uh, by the British government. But it, Looks at sex, but not if you like, at the fun bits of sex. it looks at frequency it looks at uh, uh, it looks at issues of coercion and abuse but uh, and sexual disease, but it doesn 't look at fantasies and role play and things like uh, and different scenarios and things like uh, like that and so that 's the uh, the niche, if you like, that I seek to fill with uh, with my work away from political work to get a greater understanding of sex and relationships beyond uh, simply quite frankly, bullshit PR surveys, or very dry medical work.
0: So in order to make sure that we're looking at the niche that you fill without it being dry, uh, can you give us some of, idea of what was in the, those surveys and what people were telling you?
1: Yes, what we, uh, what we found was that in actual fact, the British people have relatively, with a, um, uh, with a small seat, conservative attitudes towards, uh, towards sex and uh, sexual behaviour. From a number of surveys that we've conducted, one of the things that comes through consistently is that people believe their sex life is conventional. Uh, nearly half of people, when asked, unprompted for, uh, for their, uh, to describe their sexual behavior and, uh, and their sex life, say conventional. Uh, only 3% of people say unusual, for instance, in, in contrast to that. And everything else, whether it's uh, whether it's dominant, submissive, and all these kind of uh, kind of ways of approaching things, always comes lower than simply conventional. And that same was true when it came to analysing people's sexual fantasies. We did a lot of work. Uh, A lot of work asking people in their own words to describe their favourite sexual fantasy. And when you're going to 14,000 people, it's inevitable with such a large number that you will get some uh, some wonderful, weird and wonderful and uh, certainly wouldn't seek to kink shame. Well, I was going to say wouldn't seek to kink shame anyone. Uh, That's not true. There were some where I had uh, had some question marks about their particular kinks. But uh, but generally speaking, wouldn't seek to uh, seek to kink shame anyone. But what came through from that was a lot of people were fantasizing about things that, uh, uh, that they perhaps do often, and yet, uh, and yet they fantasize about them because that's what they like doing. And, and by most standards, they are pretty conventional, pretty, uh, pretty normal. Uh, one of the things that, uh, that came out when we first did, uh, first did that survey back in 2004 uh, was that women's favorite sexual fantasy at that stage was using a vibrator. Uh, or other sex toy a uh, vibrator dildo or similar and people would see that and say well that doesn't sound particularly uh, particularly interesting and for, of course for a lot of people that may not be particularly unusual but at the time 49% of women had never used a sex toy and so for them they fantasized about it even though they couldn't actually for whatever reason make that move to uh, to actually owning one and for other people it was something that they enjoyed doing frequently or enjoyed doing every so often and so they fantasized about it in uh, uh, in that respect uh, it covered a whole host of a uh, whole host of different bases for women and so that's how it got to the top but one of the things that i think was most interesting to me was uh, the focus that some people have particularly though not always men have on aspects of their uh, aspects of their sexual fancies and the focusing around specific details there's a scene in the film When Harry Met Sally, which is one of my favourite uh, films, where the two main characters, Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, are discussing their, uh, their favourite sexual fantasies, the ones that they've had since they were children. Uh, Harry talks about this complicated fantasy around, uh, around being at the Sex Olympics, and I won't spoil, it, spoil the punchline for it, but it's very good. Uh, then uh, Sally talks about her sexual fantasy, and she says uh, there's a man, what kind of man? She's asked a faceless man. Okay, there's a faceless man. He rips off my clothes, and Harry says, "Well, what else? What's what's next?" And she said, "Well, well, that's it." And uh, and he says, "That's it. That's the uh, uh, that's the sex fantasy you've been having since you were young." And she said, "Yeah, I mean, I, I vary it sometimes." And he says, "What part?" And she said, "What I'm wearing." And actually, though that joke is uh, is very good and works very well in the film, it either knowingly or unknowingly, is actually pretty closely aligned to many people's sexual fancies. But it's those small details that they, uh, that they vary. The, um, the, I remember, the one that I remember most clearly of all the 14,000 that I had to look through uh, was, uh, was a male respondent who said, uh, my favourite sexual fancy is to watch my wife give another man a blowjob. Uh, they're in a car. And I'm watching from another car or sometimes a bus. (laughs) And you think, what's the origin of this? How does that come about? Why is the bus detail important? And I've no idea why. I've no idea why. We couldn't follow up on it. It was anonymous data. And so who knows? Who knows why some days this guy would wake up and say, oh, um, it's a bus day today. Let's go for it. I don't know. But for whatever reason, it was the focus on that specific detail that really, if you like, got him, uh, got him going. And things like that came consistently through the, uh, through the data.
0: And I can imagine with the bus, it's an additional perhaps, it, well, the bus is a little bit anonymous. I was gonna say another form of shame, but of course it's not shame because he doesn't know any of the people in the bus. What he's also perhaps liking is the voyeurism of the other passengers who presumably, if they casually looked out the window, also saw a lady, because they don't know it's his wife, with a man performing this act. So maybe there's an extra kick from knowing that other people are also viewing this act, but they don't know that it's his wife because they're strangers and a well, man.
1: There, there's all sorts of things we could speculate on this. And yes, the the scenario that you've described is perfectly plausible. But the point is, we don't know we don't know because delving into things in more detail probing as we say in the industry on these uh, on these things is not possible in the uh, in the artificial construction of the survey instruments that we uh, that we run and that's one of the uh, that's one of the downsides of these large scale surveys that actually probing more deeply is difficult and you can talk about correlations you can say oh well he for instance well i can't remember his precise details but let's say oh he's an older person or he's a person in the north of england or he's a person that reads this newspaper you can talk about correlations between that but actually pointing to causation is very very difficult simply through uh, simply through having these uh, having these text in front of you and yes the kind of analysis that you've uh, uh, you've suggested could perfectly be uh, uh, perfectly be true but we don't know we will have to we will have to wonder maybe if he's listening out there and wants to uh, wants to get in touch and explain things in more detail by all means
0: by all means one of the things that you can perhaps debunk for me i always had a a sense or a feeling or an understanding of women's fantasies that ours were perhaps slightly more complex, uh, perhaps slightly more going on. I, I get a feeling from having spoken to friends and having my own imagination that there has to be a little bit more to it. You know, we know the year. We know uh, whether there's a political turmoil going on at that particular time and how that might impact on the person who's our partner at that point. So for me, there seems to be a huge amount that has to go in to keep the cerebral part of our mind turned on, tuned in to, you know, climax which is ultimately what we're going for with these fantasies did that did that replicate in the information in the stats that, that you were getting or does it seem to be a 50 50 in terms of the fantasies and how we might build them in our minds
1: well it, it, this get then raises a the question about how you define fantasies in the uh, in the 2004 survey and subsequent work that i've done we use the framework set out by nancy friday uh, the uh, famous american uh, sexologist if uh, I may use that term, and she defines fantasies in many different ways. It can be something that uh, uh, it can be any sort of fleeting daydream that you have. It can be something that you do a lot that you fantasize about. It can be something that you would you've done a few times and would like to do more. It can be something that you've only done once and would like to do again, or it can be something that you've never. Um, uh, done and never intend to do, but the thought of it still gets you excited. And these are the kind of thoughts that we have during the day, while indeed sitting on the bus or sitting uh, recording podcasts, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And those are separate from the kind of, if you like, active fantasies that you might take uh, that you might draw on while uh, uh, while actually engaging in sex, for instance. And so there's a, there's an important distinction there. But there are differences between men and women. And of course, drawing, uh, drawing conclusions based on uh, based on gender is inevitably more complicated than I'm making it sound. And so when I say men say this, or when I say women think this, it doesn't mean all men, all women. What it means is women are more likely to, and in some cases significantly more likely to, and, and the same for men. When it comes to fantasies, one of the things that uh, that comes out is that women tend to focus more on the feelings and so they will talk about uh, they will talk about how they felt at the time, and men tend to focus more on the mechanics and so what's uh, what 's being put where what's being done that sort of uh, that sort of thing in terms of detail uh certainly when we did for instance a word count around the number of uh, number of words that people were using in their fancies, and I should say some people were w- writing nearly five hundred words in terms of uh, in terms of their description. There really wasn't that much difference, uh, and so uh, the depth that you go in really doesn't seem to vary between men and women. But as I say, the main difference is to do with uh, uh, is to do with feelings versus uh, versus mechanics. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of work in uh, work in psychology that uh, that shows that um, that women do need more of that when actually engaging in sex. But as I say, the analysis that we did was more about if you like, the daydream type fantasies that people have rather than what they go to to actually actually get more turned on while doing it.
0: And so do you think, by the sense of things, people had a sense of freedom when they were replying? When you said someone wrote 500 words in response, do you think people are maybe not asked this enough or not questioned enough? And this was an opportunity for people to really share what was going on? Because by the sense of things, especially with your guy with the bus, people were very open about what they're thinking and what's going on in their internal world and presumably that's part of what you do at Delta Pole is to try and get this information out of people in a way that feels natural to them in a way that feels makes them feel like they can be open they can be honest they can write a huge amount about the secret fantasies. does does that sound true to you?
1: Yes absolutely and that was so that was definitely part of, the, uh, part of the aim of the project and part of the difficulty that we faced. Uh, to refer back to, the, to NATSAL, the National Survey of Attitudes, of Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyle Survey. As I said, every 10 years from 1990, 15,000 people are asked that survey, but it's a face-to-face survey. So that means that a, it usually will be a female middle-aged interviewer will knock on people's doors or stop people in the street and ask them to complete the survey. Now, nowadays, that tends to be done more online, but still in those early days, and still now for people who aren't online, the idea of, let's say, giving 455 words about your favourite sexual fantasy to a middle-aged woman who's sitting in front of you is going to be, shall we say, difficult for most people. I mean, there will be some people out there for whom it's actually a plus, but uh, but they will be relatively uh, few in number. Uh, so instead, the whole point about a, an online survey is that it doesn't have That interviewer effect. It doesn't have. uh, It it doesn't make people feel. We hope uncomfortable. We uh, and there's a lot of evidence to show that people are more upfront, for want of a better expression, when it comes to online surveys. But even then, simply going straight in and saying, "Right, what's your favourite sexual fantasy?" It doesn't. uh, It doesn't work like that. You could do that. There's nothing technically stopping you to do it, Uh, but it doesn't produce very good data. And so what we focused on was the whole story. Of the questionnaire and the questionnaire took a long time to develop to guide people through the process and to get them to feel at ease and so it started off talking about relationships in general friendships uh, how do you feel to different people within your life is there a special person in your life for whom you're particularly close to or more than one and then delving more and more deeply into that easing people in and at each stage saying if you're not comfortable with this you don't need to proceed asking them about uh, fantasies in general, setting out what we meant by fantasies, talking about examples of fantasies, getting them to answer specific questions earlier on about different types of sexual behaviour, and then at the end, for one of a better expression, hitting them with it. The, it wasn't the final question, but towards the end of the survey, asking, please explain in as much detail as possible in the space below your favourite sexual fantasy. And by that stage, people were, in most cases, sufficiently warmed up and relaxed to then uh, uh, to then provide us with the uh, providing us with the information they did
0: and it wouldn't surprise me from listening to this if the kind of information that people shared with you they possibly hadn't shared before they might not even have told their partner in the case of the chap you mentioned their wife this might be something that they keep hidden was there any kind of sense of shame or did you get a sense that people were quite open about discussing their fantasies that they were willing to do that or is this a part of their life that you think they keep hidden in secret for for no good reason in, in my opinion but is, is is there a reason do you think that's possible
1: well one of the uh, one of the things that we asked was how comfortable people were about their fantasies and uh, and how uh, how likely they were to tell other other people or particularly partners and it's a full range of responses. Some people are very uh, nervous about uh, about their fancies, and in some cases, you could argue uh, that the un- particularly unusual nature of some of those fancies was made it a logical a logical behaviour. Uh, but in other cases, people were simply were simply shy about these things, which is a completely natural reaction. To go back to what you were saying about uh, about whether fe- uh, whether people feel. Uh, how would I put it? At ease with uh, with these things, or whether they feel comfortable now uh, saying these things. It, it strikes me, and I don't have data on this, but this is just a, uh, just something that I've I've sort of played around with. The, it strikes me that if you look at British history, every few decades something comes along which really catches the imagination. I think specifically because its entry into the zeitgeist means that people are then given, if you like, permission to talk about their sexual fancies with their partners in a way that they felt for whatever reason they didn't have before. And so if you go back and you think, uh, go back to the early 20th century and ladies, Cha- Lady Chatterley's Lover and the, uh, the obscenity trial around uh, around that, that became a sensation. And people were talking about sex in a way that certainly in Britain for many decades, if not hundreds of years, they hadn't talked about before. They were starting to do it because of that. Fast forward to the 1970s, and you then have the growth of of films like Deep Throat, particularly Deep Throat and uh, uh, the story of Oh, the Green Door, this gentrification of high quality pornography coming over from the United States that really captures the imagination. And again, gives that generation the opportunity to uh, to talk about sex and uh, uh, discuss things that previously hadn't been really uh, discussed in as much detail. And then fast forward to more recently in Fifty Shades of Grey and the publication of, uh, of that series of books and associated films. And then you have this permission, because it's part of the cultural landscape, because it's part of the zeitgeist, you have that permission to discuss the kind of things that are explored in 50 shades of gray in a way that uh, hadn't been given before and if you're uh, i know that if you're particularly into the kind of scene that uh, uh, that 50 shades of gray purports to uh, purports to be talking about you might say oh well that's not a fair representation of that i completely understand that my point is it doesn't need to be it's a mechanism for giving uh, for giving permission to people up and down the country to talk about these things because it's on the tv it's on the internet it's in the newspapers and so you can say oh that that 50 shades of gray book i found uh, i saw that was uh, that was trending that's quite interesting what do you think about nipple clamps and so on and so forth
0: i think that just might be the line of today so in terms of the research that you're doing and what you're discovering and what you're finding out how does this translate to single men, single women who are out there dating. The, the the openness, the willingness to talk about it. You've talked about the Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, the fact that we're far more open, perhaps, about sex. Do you think it translates in the dating world? I mean, my own perspective is that online dating certainly facilitates this belief that there's an unlimited pool of people for you to date, which means you could carry on going through them till you find someone who maybe finds the same fantasy as you've got. But have you seen that in terms of your polling for uh, for men and for women in terms of their mate selection or their partner? Has that been altered by online dating or the more kind of openness around sex and sexuality?
1: Well, I, th- I think there's a lot to unpick there. The first thing that I would uh, would say is that uh, is that over the last ten to fifteen years, with the growth of uh, of social media, but also many other things that have been developed at the same time, I get the sense that we are developing a uh, a desire for uh, for things to fit exactly as we want them, if you uh, if you like. And so, because of the near infinite choice and uh at the same time on demand lifestyle that many people many people now leave uh, now lead and indeed are able to lead as a result of developments in technology uh, there is a uh, shall we say less of a tolerance to the idea of broad church and compromise and you see that in politics very clearly with uh, with people quite often refusing to uh, uh, to back down refusing to compromise on specific issues and even when it comes to uh, political parties uh and at the same time, I think, and I, as I say, uh, the data for this is a bit, uh, is a bit sketchy. But my senses, and I think, that, uh, I think that you're seeing that in dating as well, in that people have a desire for what they want in a way that they didn't have when, for want of a better expression, they simply had the choice of everyone, in, uh, of all the single women in the village uh, and, uh, and nothing beyond that. Uh, And so if, for instance, you have a particular uh, a particular kink, a particular fetish, a particular uh, sexual um, act that you wish to explore, there are dating sites that are out there and will cater for that particular uh, particular desire in a way that if. 10 15 years ago you had that uh, you have that desire. it would be far more difficult to, far more difficult to find and so you can be more specific with your targeting but at the same time with something like uh, like the large basically any, anything associated with match.com which of course owns tinder and uh, and all these other uh, other sites anything like that where there's a huge scale that also provides you with opportunities that weren't there 10 15 years ago because uh, the uh, the mechanism for finding people is far easier than it uh, than it was and so all of that is changing the way in which we approach dating in which we approach uh, relationships and ultimately in which we approach sex if you were really into something uh, 25 years ago that you were worried was a really niche activity uh, perhaps there were uh, special contact magazines that you could uh, you can make the most of and, and clubs and and so forth to visit and yes in major cities that might have been an option uh, but if you were out in the uh, uh, out living in the countryside it probably wasn't now the globalized nature of information means that it's far easier to get in touch with other people who may share those uh, uh, share those fantasies
0: so, what are you seeing around dating, men, women, what they're looking for? Are you are you seeing significant changes in terms of people wanting to partner up or people delaying partnering up because of that choice that they have, as you say, we're not in the village anymore? So, are you seeing that in terms of the data that you're bringing on board, Delta Poll?
1: Well, I think the. The sort of partnering up and tying down and settling down issue is a really complicated one uh, that that lots of uh, uh, lots of people within the realm of psychology have accept uh, have attempted to explain it and so on and so forth but from my world in the world of politics, I think there there are some indications for why that might be, and in a lot of cases it 's that people are simply getting older later and by that I mean over the last thirty to forty years there has been a Significant change in uh, in the way that people uh, people live their lives. They are, for instance, uh, staying in education longer. That means they're starting their careers later. Uh, my parents' generation, many of them would start their careers at the age of sixteen. That is complete, virtually completely unheard of now. And for nearly half of people in this country, they won't even graduate until they're twenty one. Uh, so a big difference uh, difference there. And the job market is uh, is far more, uh, far more fluid than it once was. And so the idea of settling down in the job market now happens a lot later. People are buying houses a lot later because they need to, uh, or indeed not at all, because they need to save a lot more money than they once did, uh, because it costs a lot more than it, uh, than it once did. So therefore, you can only have access to that, in most cases, if you have access at all, much later in life. People are also getting married later. They're having children later, uh, and all that is uh, all that is linked. And so there isn't really the sense of the of settling down in any aspects of people's lives in the way that there once was at younger ages because of all these uh, all these circumstances. Then, when you throw into that the fact that uh, the fact that meeting new people is extremely straightforward now compared to what it uh, what it was, you have this if you like this perfect storm for uh, uh, for promiscuity, I mean that in the in the literal sense, moving from one to another to another, uh, you have that uh, possibility of promiscuity, whether it's in jobs, whether it's in relationships, whether it's in housing, and so on and so forth. And uh, and I think what we're seeing is that uh, uh, is that change caused, as I say, by these change in circumstances, and then uh, and then amplified and fueled by the fact that uh, that this. Infinite choice coupled with an on-demand world means that things have uh, things have changed substantially. You don't, you simply don't get to the stage now where people uh, sit in front of the TV and watch what's on in the way that they in anything like the kind of numbers that they used to. You just don't have that anymore. You don't see that. Instead, people are sitting down and watching what they want to watch, and that sort of behaviour. Uh, although I've just described it in terms of uh, consumption of TV. Is true whether it's uh, consumption of relationships as well.
0: So, of course, some people would straightaway say this is a total breakdown of traditional family values, what the country was built on. How would you counter that?
1: Uh, well, I would say it's it's an evolution, and this this is what happens in uh, in societies. If you go back three, four, five hundred years, the vast majority of people only knew the people in their immediate locality. That was probably about 20 to 25 people. And the likelihood of traveling the eight to 10 miles to see the people in the next village was extremely small. And so behavior was obviously very different then. Since then, we have had industrial revolutions, of which the data revolution is the fourth. And... Each one of those, whether it's the move from the countryside to the city, whether it's uh, uh, mass travel around uh, uh, around trains and railways and then cars, whether it's all of these things, each stage in our evolution as a species has brought about dramatic um, uh, dramatic revisions and uh, and changes to the way that uh, the way that we do approach many different things, of which relationships is just one, and that has been true. Over a number of, as I say, centuries, these big changes have happened, and I see this simply as another uh, another change in uh, in our history, and our evolution as a species. The interesting question, of course, is where things will go next. What will the next stage be? And the answer to that is, I don't know, and I don't think uh, I don't think anyone does. There is no doubt a backlash to some of this in certain uh, in certain quarters. You only have to look at the uh, you look, only have to look at the development of what's called the trad wife trend, which is uh, uh, which is the idea that uh, that women will move back to the uh, to the traditional nineteen sort fifties of housewife role of uh, of looking after the uh, looking after the house and the children while the uh, while the husband goes out to work. When I first saw that, I assumed that was a sex role play thing, but and indeed it might still be. But uh, but that is a very very small movement, but it's attracting a lot of uh, a lot of attention and is an example of the kind of uh, kind of movements away and backlashes that we've seen towards the general movement. But I do think that uh, uh, but I do think that what we're seeing is just another example of the evolution of the human race.
0: And you're totally right there. And my next question was going to be what's happening next. But when you mentioned there, the trad movement, I know you said it's a very small part of the population and potentially building. I've seen it myself, but in very simple ways. There's uh, TikToks, Instagram posts around the concept of women have been done over. Women have been screwed over by the way in which society presents us now. We're now having to have the job, give birth, and do the extra stuff in the evenings. And really, we've got to return to that sense of someone else pulling their weight. And by pulling their weight, the guy has the job while you're at home with the kids. But it's done in a very subtle, maybe we're going to call it fifth wave feminism. I'm not entirely sure which wave of feminism we're on right now, but it's becoming a trend. It's something out there designed to make us think, maybe I am hard done by. Maybe this concept of I can have it all is not what I should be going for. So I'm, I'm really genuinely not surprised that you said you're seeing this little trend of the trad wife and perhaps that's where we're going next. And as you said, it's all an evolution. We're we're continually in perpetual motion, moving forwards onto the next thing. And I don't necessarily think that there's this huge breakdown in the family structure. I think a family can be a mother and a child, a father and a child, whatever kind of makeup you want it to be. But are we seeing any stats or any information coming out about family units where perhaps there's not what we would call a traditional mum, dad and kid or two kids in the family, I think it's 1.6 now, um, is there a sense that society is suffering as a result of that? Or from what I'm seeing, society's thriving with this um, acceptance of diversity. W- w- what's your feeling on the stats that you're getting?
1: Well, before I answer that, can I just come back to the point about the trad wife uh, example uh, as an example of the backlash? I, I mentioned that because it's a it's a relatively minor uh, and relatively small thing that attracts relatively uh, little attention but the flip side of that one of the other backlashes is of course the blue pill red pill movement the manosphere incels andrew tate all of that sort of all of that sort of thing because a lot of that movement is a reaction against the kind of uh, the kind of evolutions that we've uh, we've seen and what they're reacting against to answer your question is a change in uh, is a change in the way that families are are perceived uh and we have seen for instance in in recent years a large growth in the number of uh, in the number of same sex partners with children and uh, and that becoming an established family unit in many uh, in many areas of the country where it wasn't say 20 or 30 years ago and so that's a uh, that's a big change to the family unit we're seeing the birth rate fall and uh, but we've been seeing the birth rate fall effectively for uh, for 30 or oh, Actually, maybe even more than that, more than sort of... Well, for decades, we've been seeing the birth rate fall. Let's, uh, let's just leave it at uh, that. And actually, the level of divorce is starting to fall as well. But it's slightly more complicated there because people are getting married later. And 30, 40, 50 years ago, when people uh, first started embracing the concept of divorce and the idea that you no longer needed to stay in, uh, in relationships and marriages that were, for whatever reason... Uh, uncomfortable, and unhappy, and in some cases, extremely bad situations. Uh, we're now getting to the stage where people don't get married in the first place. There's not that rush to get married. People are getting married much, as I mentioned, getting married and having children much later. And so as a result, they, uh, uh, the likelihood of divorce is falling because they will simply have a relationship with someone. And it, whereas previously it would have got married, now they just split up with them, Uh and and because they're not married, it doesn't count towards statistics. So that's a bit of a minor, uh, bit of a minor point. But it gives you an, an illustration of how things uh, uh, how things are changing. What what I think I would characterise all of these changes as, though, is an example of uh, the complexity of British and also uh, societies in other established democracies where. It is simply more complicated now than simply man and woman and 2.4 children. Uh, there are many, many different alternatives to that, which, are, uh, which have, uh, have developed for people's circumstances, which I personally think is an extremely, an extremely good thing. Uh, but not everyone shares that view.
0: You mentioned Andrew Tate uh, at the beginning, the man who holds himself aloft as the man that all women want. And yet I've not met a woman who wants Andrew Tate yet. Any fantasies? Because Of course, women often fantasize about what they definitely don't want. Any fantasies about Andrew Tate in your file of 14,000 people polled?
1: Uh, Well, we haven't uh, we haven't rerun that particular question since uh, since Andrew Tate uh, rose to uh, rose to prominence and indeed was subsequently arrested and charged. Uh, But uh, in terms of the um, uh, shall we to massively, massively simplify the situation there's no doubt that a certain proportion of people uh certain proportion of women particularly fantasize about a quote unquote bad boy and i do not for one minute wish to uh, wish to denigrate the situation uh that uh, uh, that led to andrew tate's arrest which i do think is uh, i do think is an extremely uh, uh clearly given that he's now been charged is an extremely extremely bad situation and uh uh and so I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about that, uh, which I do consider as an extremely serious situation. But putting that to one side, there is uh, a thread that goes through some people's fancies of, uh, of an attraction towards a bad boy. But actually, when you explore that, what you see is that some women, and it's really not that many, uh, do have an attraction towards, uh, uh, towards what I would describe as physical capability. And so they're attracted to they're attracted to strong people who in a lot of cases they see as protective. But they're also attracted to uh, attracted to confidence and to competence, uh, which the the quote unquote bad boy bit uh, tends to tends to provide for them. Well, they're not attracted to in most cases is the fact that they do bad behavior. <laughs> that's, that's not part of it. And so to go back to the Andrew Tate thing, I think the idea that, uh, that large numbers of women would be attracted to someone uh, like that is just completely false. That is, of course, the projection that people like Andrew Tate are putting forward to men. Uh, they are saying to other men, this is what women want whereas in actual fact that's uh, that's massively detached from uh, uh, from reality but men buy into it because uh, they see the successful thing in front of them now it's worth pointing out that there will still be some people a fractionally small number of people who are attracted to that in the same way that there are a fractionally small number of people who are attracted to serial killers for instance and uh, and to famous uh, famous prisoners. But we're talking about the tiniest of proportions of the population. That is not representative of women at all. And so, yes, there are some people that are attracted to the quote-unquote bad boy, but for different reasons than their bad behaviour. And the number of people who are actually attracted to bad behaviour is minuscule.
0: I am thrilled uh, that you drew that comparison. And uh, while we are not seeing in any way, shape or form that Andrew Tate is a serial killer. I like that the proportion of women out there who are attracted to him are in similar numbers because I do fear for the incel movement. I fear for the movement where men are being taught that that is what women want, it's not. And while we might have a sexual fantasy around this and we might like this little idea, we don't actually want to date these men, and as you said, the types of men that we do want to date have got competencies and various other things that makes us desire them and want them. So, what I'm interested in know what a woman looking for, what what a woman want from a man. We we know what they don't want. That's Andrew Tate, but what do they want? You've talked about the competencies, and in, on top of that, after that, what else are men looking for? What what are men looking for in a in a partner, in a girlfriend, in someone that they'd like to date? And we're talking, of course. Uh, it's heteronormative uh, relationships here, but you can also tell me in general about uh, about other relationships too
1: yeah i mean uh, most of, most of the work that 's been done in this area uh, tends to focus on heterosexual relationships, and that is uh, that is mainly because uh, the sample size available of heterosexual couples is much larger than that of bisexuals or 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 gay people, and so yes, when we talk about this um, when we talk about all of this we 're generally talking about uh, Uh, about what uh, what straight men and women are interested in. And uh, and the answer is, inevitably, it is uh, is complicated. And what makes it complicated is uh, what people are looking for for different things. And so the attraction that someone might have to dating someone, the attraction that someone might have to sleeping with someone is not necessarily the attraction they have for uh for having a long term relationship with someone and that 's particularly uh, uh, particularly true for um uh, for men we uh, my, one of my favorite uh, uh, one of my favorite examples of attempts to explore this was uh, was a study that was uh, was conducted in the uh, in the United States and it was looking at looking at what women want from a uh, from a sexual partner and what women want from a long term uh, long term relationship. And in order to investigate this, uh, they focused just on the area of penis size, uh, penis size, penis shape, uh, the whole package for want of a, uh, for want of a better expression. And to investigate this, they 3D printed different shaped genitals, penis and, uh, and testicles and varied the size of these, uh, of these 3D printed, uh, printed, uh, things and they varied the uh, they varied the width they varied the length etc etc they were all blue in color so as to remove any uh, any possible ethnicity effect and they asked a admittedly and unfortunately small uh number of women to rank these different sizes and shapes in terms of their attractiveness for a one night stand and there in terms of attractiveness for a long term relationship and it was different uh, different groups for both what the uh, scientists found and this wasn't a representative sample and we can talk all day about how these sort of psychological lab tests are then extrapolated up for the entire population but what they found in that particular test at that particular time among that particular group of respondents was that uh, women were more attracted to a larger penis for one night stands and a slightly smaller penis for long-term relationships. That is an example of how people's priorities differ. There is a big difference in terms of of the genders when it comes to this. Uh, Men tend to be, in terms of dating people, they tend to be attracted primarily to looks. So physical attractiveness is very important to men in a way that it isn't to the same extent for women. Again, most men, most women. For women, it tends to be about, uh, though that's not to say that physical attractiveness isn't, attractiveness isn't important at all, but it tends to be more about things like competence and confidence. Those uh, those sorts of things are more important for women than they are for uh, than they are for men, and uh, and so those uh, those differences are, uh, are both there for uh, for both genders.
0: And in terms of, uh, I'm sorry, my my battery's just gone in this, which is why I've temporarily uh, lost my attention point here. So in terms of what we're doing with men and women and their dating, I mean, one of the things as a matchmaker that I hear from men, and people always say that they think that men are looking for tall, skinny blondes with big boobs. And purely as a matchmaker, I get told far often things such as I'm looking for someone who's kind. And uh, the second most uh, common thing I get asked for is no plastic surgery. Is that anything that you've heard of? Does that sound like it fits in with your polling, of course, I'm dealing with hundreds of people over the course of a year rather than thousands of people over the course of a year. But for me, uh, certainly, it is not the tall, skinny, buxom blonde that I'm being requested.
1: Well, the, the inter- uh, let me take the... Uh, firstly, physical attractiveness is more important to men and who described that, but what people want from physical attractiveness certainly does vary. I think the plastic surgery point is an interesting one because people say no plastic surgery. But what do they actually mean? What they mean is no visible plastic surgery, nothing that looks fake, nothing that looks, for want of a better expression, unnatural. And so, uh, uh, and so that is a very common, uh, a very common theme that uh, theme that comes through. People want uh, want an authentic, uh, an authentic look. But you see the same with uh, with men when they talk about makeup. They say, oh, I I don't like women wearing uh, wearing makeup. What they mean is they don't like women wearing lots of makeup. They want a natural look, but a natural look for many women is achieved through makeup. And certainly when you ask men to to look at examples of different makeup, they say, oh, yes, the natural look, where they mean actually natural looking makeup. And what this touches on is the idea that actually people are pretty poor at explaining their own behavior. And this is true in political science when it comes to voting intention in the same way that it's true for dating, when, uh, when people say what it is they, uh, they look for. And part of the problem, as I see it, with dating apps and with, uh, with this explosion in, uh, in websites and, um, and the process that people go through for dating, is that it gets them to artificially think about things that really, when you examine it, are not particularly important. When you're looking at, to use the example in political science of voting intention, you look at what drives someone's voting intention. If you look at this sensibly, you'll use what's called a multivariate model, uh, a regression model, to look at lots of different factors to determine which of those drives the, determined, uh, the dependent variable, in other words, the actual thing that you're trying to predict. So in this case, vote. So what determines whether someone votes Labour or votes Conservative? Well, it might be, uh, it might be their age, their gender, their education, their attitudes towards immigration, uh, economic competency, etc. Et All of these factors go in. And these factors combined within the model explain a certain proportion of a person's vote uh, preference towards Labour. But then there's something called the error term in these statistical models, which basically means everything else and that everything else in data is it, is hugely important and particularly important in dating because you may be asked as part of the uh, as part of the process uh what do you think about uh what would your ideal height be or what would your ideal uh, uh Ideal income be and we see this in um, in really extreme cases with the the six 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 foot dating phenomenon which i'm uh, which are you, are you familiar with the for, for those of you uh, at home not familiar with the six 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 dating phenomenon the six 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 dating phenomenon uh, is the idea that um, that women will put on dating profiles or will say in conversations that they 're only interested in six 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 dating and six 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 dating means uh, men who are at least six foot, have a penis at least six inches in length, and earn at least six figures. That for them is the important, uh, is the important thing because they think that's what's important. Uh, and uh, there are various ways through dating processes that you ask questions about income and uh, and height and all these other things. But actually, when you look at it statistically, all of those things that people say are important to them. Actually, account for a relatively small proportion of the attractiveness that somebody has for someone, and the error term is enormous. That other bit, the intangible, is really uh, is really really difficult to uh, to uh, to measure. But that tends to be these sort of softer, hidden uh, attributes, such as yes, kindness. But as I say, competence and uh, competence and confidence for uh, uh, for men and for women attractiveness uh physical attractiveness but also various things around compatibility around uh, around confidence as well uh and that all comes uh, that all comes together and uh and it's really interesting to me that uh, that people have moved towards something like tinder because it is just so often particularly for men just an immediate well do you like it or not that's tapping into the error term through uh, less conscious decisions that people make, which actually in some cases can be more useful and more powerful. Uh, it's about asking the right questions and really understanding what people want rather than just having them say that, that of course, becomes, uh, becomes so important. And you will know that as a, uh, as a matchmaker, these things, are, these things are important. What we do know from the data around uh, websites, however, is there are things that people lie about and they lie about because they think that, uh, that they're important to people. And in a lot of cases, people genuinely do think they're important to them. Uh, and so make measurements on that and make, uh, and make decisions based on that, even though, as we say, actually, if they examine their own behavior in more detail, if they were asked the right questions, they would understand that something's more important. And the things that li- uh, people lie about, uh, change from gender to gender, men will lie about their height, and their income. Uh, we know that they will uh, they know they will elevate both. And I say that as someone who's six foot four. And so we'll regularly have people say, well, how tall are you? So it's six six? Because nobody knows how tall six foot is anymore. No one has an accurate gauge of that. And I will regularly speak to men who will say, "Oh, yeah, you must be I'm six foot, so you must be six six. And I say, or oh, I'm six four and you're five ten. But anyway, so men lie about uh, their height and their uh and their income and women lie about their age and their weight uh, because it's thought that those are the uh, those are the things that uh, the men will be looking on and so and so the age and the weight go down the income and the height go up
0: and the thing that i love about what you've just talked about jill is what we experience on the ground as matchmakers which is people coming to us with this huge shopping list, as my trademark slogan goes, love is not a list, but they come with this huge shopping list of what they're looking for in a partner. And when it comes down to it, they're kind of a unicorn that they're looking for out there. And what I often say to my clients is, imagine you're at a dinner party and you're sitting next to this incredible, funny, great company, doesn't matter the gender guest who's sitting right next to you. And you discover that they've recently been set up with a friend of yours. The host has set them up with a friend of yours. They're in this great relationship. And you corner your host in the kitchen and say, why on earth did you not introduce them to me? They are perfect. They're my ideal partner. And they turn around and say, well, I'm sorry, they didn't have a university degree. And and you said you could never date someone in banking. You've always said you would hate to date a banker. And they say, but not that banker, not that banker. And this is the whole thing that we deal with every single day as matchmakers, is trying to take this laundry list that people are looking for and say, none of these things count. None of these things are values. None of these things dictate how someone makes you feel or whether they'll make you a cup of coffee on a Sunday morning. None of these things control whether or not you should be in a relationship with that person, but they cling to this list. They cling to this list for dear life, and it's great to hear that you are seeing that too. You're seeing this total uh, separation between what someone thinks they want and need and what would actually be brilliant for them, Now, I have a friend
1: yeah, and, that, and that's that 's as true in political science with voting intention as it is with dating. People have this idea and it it tends to be uh, it tends to be very different, which is why you get politicians focusing on the idea that oh well, if we only deliver this one policy, then people will uh, will vote for us no it's a lot more it's a lot more complicated than that in politics, and it 's a lot more complicated than in that in the world of dating, and that's just thinking about going on a date with someone before you've even considered the different or, ch- or uh, tweaked set of considerations that you have for someone, whether you want to be in a long-term relationship with them or not.
0: No, I have a very naive friend. She's a total delight. She's called Brenda. I told her that I was meeting you today and she came up with a couple of true or false questions that she wanted me to ask you. She's a sweet girl, but you know, here we go. True or false? In a survey of social media users, it was found that 66% of people would rather receive 100 retweets than $100. Does that sound true or false to you?
1: Well, I mean, that may be true in the sense that a particular survey produced those results. But does it mean that that's representative of social media users? No, it doesn't. It means that that's almost certainly a bad survey.
0: True or false? Uh, And again, she's a sweet girl. According to a survey, 90% of people believe that sharing a pizza is a more intimate act than sharing a kiss or having sex.
1: (laughs) As I say, I I would suggest that's that's the type of survey that is used to... That was probably a PR survey for a pizza company used to advertise a particular new type of pizza or a new pizza company Uh, that they produce that statistic in order to get in newspapers. And you see the same sort of thing time and again. My favorite statistic along those lines is um, a survey that was published in the Daily Mail saying that two-thirds of women have listened to Adele's song Hello. Many of us will be familiar with that song. So two-thirds of all women have listened to Adele's song Hello and then phoned an ex to reconcile. Two that two in every three women have done that precise thing. That was the uh, that was the suggestion. And when you delve into it some more, you find that uh, this was a survey by a website called whatsyourprice.com, which positions itself as a dating website, but one shall we say very different from the kind of dating you're involved with. Uh, on that website, you can pay to go out on dates with people, or you can be paid to date people. Now, call me old-fashioned, but I thought there was a term for that, uh, but apparently this, uh, this website provides the opportunity to, uh, to do that. And that, uh, that survey was designed purely to attract attention for that website, and it worked. Uh, these types of surveys are everywhere, and they have little, in fact, in the vast majority of cases, they have absolutely no value whatsoever.
0: So men don't need to worry about their partner's exes quite yet. Hello is still allowed to be played at home without risk of divorce or breaking up a relationship. Joe, I've got one final question for you. What is the best piece of advice that you would like to share?
1: Well, I've actually written it down uh, to make sure that I make sure that I got it right. So excuse me while I uh, while I just look it uh, look it up. But um uh, but I have a five point based on the uh, based on the available decent data that we have i have uh, i have five points to think about when uh, when thinking about dating uh, so if you want to maximize your chances of successful dating if you want to maximize your your chances of finding somebody if you uh, if you're single or even if you're not and you wish to and uh, wish to improve your uh, improve your chances then focus on the uh, on the next uh, five things the first thing is to take risks uh, there's a lot of evidence in the data to show that uh, uh, that taking risks is going to be beneficial and that doesn't mean throwing yourself off a building and and things like that it simply means showing a willingness to put yourself out there to be proactive if you're a woman asking a man out on a date if you're a man Asking a woman how's on a date, all of these types of behaviour uh, are really seen as uh, seen as positives in the uh, in the data, and so that's hugely uh, that's hugely important. Uh, so that's number one, taking risks. Number two, maximise your physical attractiveness, and by that I mean uh, that uh, we are all given, if you like, a, a set of, uh, of attributes when it comes to uh, when it comes to our physical attractiveness, many of which we uh, we cannot change. Uh, But what comes across in the data very clearly is that people who maximize their physical attractiveness uh, are seen as far more attractive than those who do not, regardless of, if you like, the total level of attractiveness. And so that means working on personal hygiene, uh, working on nice clothes, clean clothes, clothes that fit, thinking about what you're wearing. Uh, uh, having a haircut that makes you look good whatever that uh, whatever that may be, uh, all of those types of things efforts that you go to to maximize your physical attract- attractiveness will pay dividends to both men and women so that's really, uh, that 's really important. next one on my list is uh, is to demonstrate pro social behaviors. In other words, whether it's your uh, profile picture on a dating website or whether it's the discussions you have on a date, talk about the fact that you do social activities. Talk about your, uh, your friends, uh, what you do with your friends, the group activities that you do, the interaction you have with other members of the human race, particularly those who you're close to, and demonstrate the fact that you do have, uh, you do have friends, you do have this wide, uh, this wide network. That can be really, really beneficial and is seen as a hugely attractive trait um, next uh maximize your education. Uh, there is no doubt that uh, uh, that people who have taken the steps to at the most basic level uh stay in school as long as, they, as long as they can tend to be more attractive to people of the of the opposite of the opposite sex uh once you get to higher levels for instance the distinction between an ma and a phd is uh, is more fuzzy but certainly uh certainly particularly for men uh educational uh and it doesn't necessarily need to be qualifications but uh educational benefits will in turn benefit you in terms of uh, in terms of attractiveness to others and then, uh, lastly, what's on my uh, what's on my list? Yes, number five is to enlarge your friendship group. Take steps to actively enlarge your friendship groups. Whether that means signing up for uh, signing up for new classes, uh, going to events with, with people you don't know, uh, but taking the opportunity to meet as many people as you can, and that's linked to the taking risk as- aspect. But simply enlarging the numbers of people that you meet will pay, uh, will pay dividends. And so to go through those again, number one, take risks. Number two, maximize physical attractiveness. Number three, demonstrate pro-social behaviors. Number four, maximize education. And number five, enlarge your friendship groups. Those are, uh, those are my five recommendations that I've basically stolen from other people all over the internet and brought together as my top five. Joe
0: Twyman, I was hoping that the final image that we all had in our minds was of this blue printed phallus in large size form. But unfortunately, it's not even gonna be the nipple clamps. I think your five points that we have been trying to tell our clients about, sharing with our clients, sharing with as many people as possible. Your five points went even further than I think we've ever done. Thank you so much for those. That's really going to help people who are out there, single looking and determined to find the love of their life. Who knew that you would be the font of all things matchmaking and dating? We can add that to your list of credentials. Thank you so much, Joe.
1: Thank you. And I have a whole presentation on, uh, on the, uh, the research around sex. If anyone is interested for weddings, christenings, bar mitzvahs and funerals, I'm available for, uh, for hire. Just, uh, just find me on, uh, on all the social medias.
0: Wonderful. And I'm going to make sure you're tagged in everything that comes out. Thanks again, Joe. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us at Love Is Not A List to find out more about the brilliant guests that I interview and to get some groundbreaking advice on dating, matchmaking, sex, relationships and elective co-parenting. Visit us on the links below.